Good morning. You have your Bible. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Church. I want to particularly welcome you this morning if you are visiting with us. Um, We're really glad you're here. I say this uh, a lot, but you've been here for a while or been a Christian for a long time. I hope you find this a place where you can grow spiritually and find great community. Uh, And if you're uh, struggling with what you believe about Christianity, I hope as well that you find this to be a safe place for you to explore the truth claims uh, of Jesus. So we're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, In the coming weeks, we have been in the Gospel of John uh, for a while, and we are shifting gears for a few weeks until we get to our fall series, which is the life of David, uh, starting September the 10th. Until then, we're going to be looking at basically this idea of who are we as a church, what's our DNA, what makes us go, what's the motor that drives our ministry, Uh, but we're also going to be looking at our vision, Uh, who are we as a church, not only that, but uh, what do we want to see God do in and through us uh, at Faith Church. If you look at the front of your bulletin, you'll see a phrase that might go overlooked, but that is actually elements of our mission statement or vision statement here. We want to be a church where we exalt the grace of King Jesus. We want to exhibit that in worship, and we want to exhibit that grace in our community, and we want to extend the gospel of grace not only to our communities, but to our city and ultimately to the world. You'll see three things there in that statement. You'll see a focus on worship, you'll see a focus on community, and you'll see a focus on mission. And if you've been coming to our church for a while, you've been a long-time member here, that should be nothing new. That's been the vision statement for many, many years in our church. And I hope that if you've been here for a while, you'll think about this statement, and I hope that you will uh, learn it. And more importantly, I hope that you will take this and apply it to your life uh, and think about ways that uh, it can impact you uh, in a new and fresh way. If you're visiting or new to our church, I think this is going to be a great couple of weeks for you because this is going to actually allow you, in a sense, it's like a newcomer's class, Um, but it'll allow you to get a sense of who we are as a church and what we want to see Uh, God do? What is the foundation for our ministry uh, here at our church? I've been here for seven months, and so I've been doing a lot of listening. I've been doing a lot of of learning and a lot of thinking about who we are as a church and kind of who God has assembled or is assembling here at Faith Church. And as I think about that, I get really, really excited. It's really amazing if you think about it because, and you might not be aware of this, I'm sure you are, but you know we've got people really literally from all over the city that come here on Sunday morning. All over, over the mountain Birmingham. We've got people from Homewood all the way down to Alabaster, maybe further down than that, and everywhere in between come here every single week. And then they leave here and go back into their homes and neighborhoods and schools and workplaces all over the city. That is an amazing opportunity that God has given our church. Because literally, we have the opportunity as a church to impact large portions of our city. And as I've been thinking about it, there are lots of ways we could describe this. 
but we're kind of like an aircraft carrier. Every week, people from all over come and they land here at Faith Church and we sing songs and we hear the word preached and we come to the table and we have community and we talk about this a lot. We have our hearts recalibrated and we get refueled and we get tuned up, so to speak, and then we leave here and go on mission all over the city. And what I want us to talk about this morning is what kind of fuel are you going to get when you land at our church on Sunday morning? Because what kind of fuel that we fill you up with on Sunday morning makes all the difference in the world when it comes to our mission. You know that, bad fuel in a car, the car does not run well and does not accomplish the purpose that it was given. Because if you come here and think about it, we could give you all kinds of fuels. We could give you the fuel of self-help, 10 steps to a better life. Or we could give you the fuel of self-sufficiency or moralism or trying harder. Or we could load more burdens down on you than you already have when you walk through the doors of our church. We don't want to do that. We want to be a church that fills you up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we believe that the gospel is the fuel for accomplishing our vision for ministry. It's the motor that drives our worship and our community and our mission. It's the very foundation of our church. And it's that gospel that we want to take out into our neighborhoods and workplaces and families. And I think this is very important because honestly, I think a danger for our church, if I'm honest, because I hear this over and over, and it's awesome, but it's also a danger. People say, man, I feel refreshed. I feel so loved and reached out to and cared for. And that's a great thing. But the danger is that we don't remember that we're on mission and we have to leave here and go back out into the world and therefore we become an ingrown church. See, we don't want that to happen. Planes that land on aircraft carriers, they don't stay there. They take off and go back out onto mission. You see, we as a church want to take what we're getting here and what Jesus is giving us on Sunday morning, and we want to be a movement for the gospel in our city. So with that in mind, follow along with me as I read Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 16. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel of Uh, With the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask him to come through his spirit 
and to bless our time studying it this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would reveal to us this morning uh, yourself. Uh, some of us this morning are burdened. We fear, uh, feel uh, fearful and angry and maybe doubtful. Others of us are doing great and very comfortable. Uh, but wherever we are, we pray that you would come and meet us and show us how uh, the gospel really is good news. Would you fill us up with the, the, the gospel fuel so that we could go and share it with the world? Pray that uh, you would help us to apply it as well more fully to our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. See, two things about the gospel that I want us to look at in this passage this morning. And the first one is, what is it? What is the gospel? Secondly, we want to look at how it operates in our lives, how it works itself out. So let's look at number one, what is the gospel? Look at verse 16 with me. If you look through that verse, I won't read it again, but there's no doubt what Paul's trying to talk to us about in that verse. There's no doubt what the point is, and that is justification. Three times in one verse, we see the word justified. What does the word justification mean? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that's not just, it is a fancy theological word, but it's not just for people that are really into theology. Every one of us needs to have a firm grasp on this word justification because it's a Bible word. It's in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. And we see it here in this passage, and it's really important. It's actually central, I would argue, to the Christian faith. It's Paul's nutshell summary of the gospel because it answers the most important question that a human being can ever ask. How am I made right with God? How is a person made acceptable before a holy God? And there's lots of ways we can talk about it, uh, but let's kind of work that out, and let me try to illustrate and work out what justification means. Well, think about a job. If you're going for a job interview, what do you have to do? Well, oftentimes, the first part of the process is you have to submit a resume to make it to uh, an interview. And when you think about your resume, you put lots of time into your resume, you meet with career counselors. You have people read and reread it. You try to word things perfectly, and you're listing all of your accomplishments and all of the uh, achievements that you have. And you give that to the employer, and you submit your resume, and they determine if it's good enough and whether you're acceptable enough. And if you are, then they accept you. You're justified. Your resume is good enough. Think about a sports team. What are you submitting when you're trying out for a sports team? Your athletic record, right? And whether or not you make the team is based on how skilled you are and how athletic you might be. And if you're good, then you are accepted based on your athletic ability. You are therefore justified. It's the exact same way with a holy God. Hang with me. Friends, God evaluates the moral record that we offer him. And depending on how good we are, on, on how good that resume is that we submit, determines whether or not he accepts us or justifies us. He accepts you 
based on how good the resume is that you, ex- that you submit to him. But here's the question. Whose resume are you going to submit? Whose resume are you going to submit to God? Religion, every religion and philosophy in the world says you submit your own resume to God. That's terrible news, isn't it? Because it means that God's love and acceptance of you is based on you. It's based on how good you are and how committed you are and how devoted you are. You are evaluated on how good your record is. And Paul comes in this chapter and says Christianity is the complete opposite. Religion and Christianity, he's saying, is polar opposites. How so? Because the gospel says you're made acceptable not by your resume, but by Jesus' resume. You see, it has nothing to do with you obeying the law and not obeying the law. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, that's why he had to be sinless. He kept the law perfectly. Have you ever thought about why Jesus, I've thought about this, why Jesus didn't die at like 12 years old or 13 and go to the cross and just say, let's get this over with? Well, he had to live. And he lived 33 years. And what he was doing was earning a record for you. He was earning a record of perfect obedience for you, that he gives to you. And see, that's justification. It's the great exchange. It's the best news in the world because it says that Jesus gets all of your sin and you get all of his righteousness. That is a pretty good deal in my book. That's really good news. Let me try to work it out with an illustration. Some time ago, I heard about a man who was in England and he had a Rolls Royce and he loved his Rolls Royce. He was going to tour the continent of Europe and during his vacation, and so he, put, he loved his Rolls Royce so much that he put it on a boat and he took his car with him and he was going to use his car to travel around. Halfway through his vacation and trip, the Rolls Royce breaks down and quits running. He calls Rolls Royce on the phone and says, listen, my car broke down. Can you tell me where I can take it or how I can get this thing fixed? I need to finish my vacation. And Rose Roy said, we're putting someone on a plane right now. They will meet you, and they will fix your car. This guy comes, this mechanic from Rose Royce, he fixes the car, and he sends this man on the way in his vacation. But he's thinking the entire time, what in the world did that just cost me? <laughs> he gets back, and he writes a letter. And he says, dear Rose Royce, I was in Europe, I was on vacation, my car broke down, you sent a mechanic to come fix it. What do I owe you? A couple of weeks later, he got a letter back, Dear Sir, there's no record anywhere in our files that anything has ever gone wrong with a Rolls Royce. (laughs) That's justification. That's the gospel. There's no record in any of God's files that anything has ever gone wrong with a justified sinner. And to the degree that you grasp that will make all the difference in how you live. Because you see, religion says, I obey, 
so that God will accept me and love me. The gospel says, no, 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 no. I am loved and I am accepted by God. Therefore, I obey and move out into the world to love and serve him. And friends, those produce radically different ways of living. Those two things, religion and the gospel, produce radically different people. Let me give you an example from my own life, a little bit of my story. Uh, When I was in college, I came home from a missions trip. I was dating Susie at the time. And thank you, Susie, for sticking with me. (laughs) But uh, needless to say, I was just a little fired up for Jesus, and that's not a bad thing. But I put my notebook, I had this because that's what serious Christians do, right? I came back, I was ready to storm the dorms for Jesus. I had my uh, three-ring binder, and I had in it all my spiritual goals for the semester. I had my plan on all the scripture I was going to memorize how I was going to pray for the lost, uh, all the, my reading plan and how many minutes a day I was going to read and pray. And I remember at the beginning of the semester getting with some of my friends and we had mapped out this plan for how we were going to share the gospel with all 250 people in our dorm and how many people a day that we were going to have to share the gospel with in order for us to reach the dorm and accomplish our goal. And let me insert this. The problem, let me be clear, was not those things. Okay, those are good things. You've always heard me say the problem's not out there. The problem's here, right? The problem was what my heart was doing with those things. And what my heart was doing with, was, with those things was this. God, I'm going to show you how committed I am. I'm going to show you how serious I am. And when I show you how serious I am, you will have favor on me, and you will really love me. And so here's what my life was. I do these certain things. I obey. Therefore, God accepts and loves me. Religion. But let me tell you what that produced in me. Let me tell you what was going on on the inside. On the inside, I felt like an utter failure. I felt like a failure because I had all these lofty goes, and I didn't, I didn't accomplish them. I didn't pray like I wanted to, read the Bible. I didn't share my faith. I didn't disciple enough people. I felt like a failure. I was also full of fear and exhaustion, as you might imagine. I was full of exhaustion because I never knew when I was doing enough to please God. And so I lived good day, bad day Christianity. You know what that is? When I do really good and I wake up and I have my quiet time and I do all the things that I've had mapped out for me to do, God loves me. He's pleased with me. But when I don't do those things or I miss a day, I felt like a failure and I felt like he was mad at me. And not only that, I thought he was going to bring punishment and bad things into my life. I was prideful. I looked down my nose on everyone else who didn't have a big black three-ring binder with all of their spiritual goals in them. And I looked down on them because I didn't think they were serious enough. I was insecure and competitive, thinking someone was getting ahead of me spiritually. And so I saw them as competition and never really loved them. I was on a performance treadmill. And I was running as fast as I possibly can. And you know what happened? I hated this. I hated Christianity. Because it was such a drag. 
and it was so burdensome to me. There was no joy in it. And then I had a friend in my dorm take me out to Oak Mountain Church. Briarwood High School is where it was meeting at the time in the early 90s. And I walked in and I heard Bob Flayhart start, start talking about justifi- justification by faith and it changed my life. Because for the first time I realized that Christianity was not about me submitting my resume. But Jesus had submitted his resume for me. And that meant that I was evaluated not based on my record. I was evaluated based on his, his perfect record. And that made all the difference in my life. Friends, religion is very poor fuel, isn't it? It's very poor fuel for ministry. And that's why at our church, at Faith Church, we believe the order is everything. The order is absolutely everything. You are accepted. That's what we want you to hear. And you are loved more than anything in the world. Now go out into the world and love and serve him. You see the difference? We want to minister here at our church and minister to our city out of an overflow of Jesus' deep love for us. Because what that does is produce joy and freedom and love and holiness. Secondly, what does it look like in our life? Look at verses 11 through 13. What's going on in this passage? We could get in the weeds very, very quickly uh, in this. So let me just try to explain in a nutshell what's happening here. Think about our Thanksgiving service that we have here on in November, our Thanksgiving feast or dinner that we have. So fast forward to November, and imagine Peter and Paul are here, and some other Jews, and they're sitting at the table, and they're with Gentiles, and they're having the time of their life, just like we do. They're festive, and they're sharing, and eating, and drinking together. And that's a big deal. That was a big deal back then, because Jews and Gentiles didn't associate with each other, right? Jews thought Gentiles were unclean because of the particular foods that they ate. The gospel comes and blows that up so that Peter, the, you know, Peter and Paul say, we can have fellowship with anybody, anybody because Jesus has knocked down that dividing wall that existed between us and them. We can move towards them. And so that's what they're doing. They're living out the gospel. But then in walks this group called the Circumcision Party, which is a great name for a group of people walking in. And, and so, so they walk into our party, to our Thanksgiving feast, and there is a table in the corner, and they say, we're going to sit there because these people are filthy, and so we're going to go eat by ourselves. Now, let me explain the circumcision party. They believed in Jesus, but their gospel was Jesus plus something. Okay, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. They said, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but you also got to obey these clean laws and these food laws. And so Peter sees the circumcision party walk in and sit down, and he starts thinking, oh no, what are they going to think about me? And so Peter becomes full of fear and he gets really anxious and he scoots back from the table and he grabs his plate of food and his sweet tea and he goes to another table because he wants to please the circumcision party. And then all these other Jews, Barnabas being one of them, decides to follow him. 
The Apostle Paul, his number, the table number is called, and he's out in the upper gathering hall getting his food. So he's getting his big plate of food, and he walks in, and he says, whoa, what happened here? The Jews are now separated from the Gentiles, and I don't like this. And he says that he confronts Peter in front of every single person in the room. Look at verse 14. It says, I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So I said to Peter in front of all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? See, what Paul is basically saying is, God doesn't accept you and didn't accept you on the basis of your race, nationality, and culture. So why aren't you accepting them? on the basis of their race and culture. But here's what I want you to notice. Notice this is important and very insightful and instructive. Notice what uh, Paul, he doesn't look at Peter and say, you're such a racist. You broke the no racism law, and he did. That's not what uh, Paul says to him, though. He doesn't look and say, you have such bad table manners. You were so rude in getting up from the table from those Gentiles. No, that's not what he does. Look at verse 14. He says, you are not living in step with the gospel. With the truth of the gospel. You're not living in line with the gospel. In other words, he's saying... We are to interpret every situation, and Paul interpreted the situation here that was happening through the lens of the gospel. He's basically saying Peter's racism issue was a gospel issue. And see, the assumption there is that the gospel has implications in every single area of our lives. And that's profound. It's definitely profound from the way I uh, grew up in the church in thinking about the gospel. It goes against all that we normally think because we often think that the gospel is simply the entry point to the Christian life. It's for non-Christians to get them into the faith, but once you're kind of in, you put the gospel on the shelf and you just kind of get on with daily living and doing whatever it is that you want to do. And I know we plop down right in the middle of this book But think about Galatians, and who was Galatians written to? Was it written to non-Christians? No, it was written to a church. It was written to Christians, and that is significant because it tells us that the gospel is not just the entryway. The gospel is the path that we are to walk every single day in our lives. Or if we don't think that, we think the gospel is kind of the elementary stuff, don't we? tend to think it's just kind of the basics. And, you know, I kind of got that, and that's what people who are trying to figure out Christianity need. But once I get that, I can move on to theology. Because that's really where you want to get to. Now, it's not what we see here, is it? No, it's not what we see, because think about who Paul is talking to. Paul is saying the gospel is the advanced stuff. He's talking to Peter who is an apostle. And he's saying, Peter, you're misunderstanding the gospel and you need to apply it to your life in this situation. And friends, if Peter needed it, we most certainly need it every single day of our life. 
And at Faith Church, we believe that you never outgrow the gospel. Not just the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the advanced stuff. It's the A to Z in the Christian life. It changes every single thing in your life. It has implications for everything. The gospel has implications for your work and the way you work and the way you view your work. It has implications for your sexuality. It has implications for the way you think about your money and your relationship, for the way we think about our city, for the way we think about the poor, for the way we deal with people that differ from us politically, for the way we think about our marriage, youth. The gospel has implications for the way you welcome new people to the youth group, welcome visitors for the ways you think about outsiders and bringing them in. The gospel impacts how you think about those things because it has lines that go into every single area of our lives. That's what we want to be as a church. We want to constantly be thinking of ways and lines where we can draw the gospel to show how it impacts even the smallest detail in our lives. And there are lots of ways to do that. And one of those is obviously here on Sunday morning in this service, But you know an even better way than that, I believe? Small groups. Grace groups. Kingdom communities where we take this room and make it smaller and we're able to discuss and really work through how the gospel applies to every single area of our lives. And so we, if you're not involved in one of those, I want to encourage you to get involved. And we're approaching the fall. Be thinking about how you can get involved in a small group, so that you can be shaped more fully by the gospel. See, the gospel changes everything. You know what we want at Faith Church more than anything else? We want people in all our spheres of influence all over over the mountain Birmingham to come in contact with this life-changing power. That is our passion. That is our motivation. Let me close with this story. In the 18th century, uh, George Whitfield, you might have heard that name, it might sound familiar, but he was an Anglican priest in the Great Awakening. And he was a great preacher. And he was so captivated by the gospel that he just had to tell people. And so much so that he was frustrated that no one was coming to his church uh, to hear the gospel. And so he started open-air preaching. And so he would go out and basically preach in the streets for anyone that would care to listen. And so he decided one day that he was going to take the gospel on the outskirts of town to the coal miners. He was going to preach to them. And so he walks up to the coal mines and he's waiting for all these young coal miners to come up out of the mine. And, you know, uh, it was a hard business. It was a very rough way of life. And often you died young in the coal mines. And so they lived pretty miserable lives. And so they're coming up out of the coal mines and There stands George Whitfield in full clerical gear. Black robe, has a podium, powdered wig and all. And he looks at the coal miners and he says, I want to preach to you. And they were amazed that someone like Whitfield would want to spend time and have contact and associate with them. And so hundreds of coal miners gathered around George Whitfield and he's preaching the gospel to them. He's preaching this robust gospel of 
justification by faith alone that Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter 2. And the witnesses that day said they looked down the coal miners' faces and they started to see these, and their face was full of coal dust. And they noticed these white splotches on their faces. And they started to realize that the white splotches were actually tears running down their eyes, running down their cheeks, and making these little white gutters on their cheeks. See, the gospel's powerful. It's powerful, and that robust gospel is the gospel that had the power to save those coal miners that day. And it was the same robust gospel that has changed you if you're a Christian and believer in Jesus this morning. And it is that same robust gospel that Paul says in Romans 1 that is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And it is that robust gospel, that powerful gospel, that we want to leave here with on Sunday morning and take with us wherever it is that we're going to. Because you see, it's that gospel that's going to transform our neighborhoods and our schools and our families and our workplaces and ultimately the entire city. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you that you have taken away our sin and you have given us your perfect record. Lord, may that uh, never cease to uh, amaze us and move us. I pray now that you would take that and drive it down uh, deep into our hearts. And I also pray that you would help us to work out the implications in our lives. On where we're not taking the gospel into areas of our lives. Help us to apply it uh, to all of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.